0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Motorsport Podcast. I'm Ed Foster and I'm joined today by none other than the world champion, multi world champion, multi Olympic <laughs> champion Sir Chris Hoy. Sir Chris th- very warm welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. I am apologise for the, uh, the, the sort of dressed down appearance. I, d- I thought it was an audio
1: <laughs> podcast. I didn't realise. Apologies so, to
0: no, everybody at home. I've got a much worse body, so that's why I'm hiding it under a jacket. <laughs> um, now, before we go anywhere, I must tell you all about two amazing Readers events that we've got coming up at Motorsport Magazine. The first is on September the 10th, and that's with Nigel Mansell. And then on September the 20th, we've got one with Gordon Murray. Two icons of the sport an overused word but not in this case so if you'd like to learn a little bit more about them book tickets which are selling very very fast at the moment then please go to motorsportmagazine.com forward slash events now, Chris, we are uh, in one of your locals up in Cheshire. And uh, not only have we spotted the Cheshire Housewives um, here for a meeting, we've also got someone uh, trying to drill sure. through the wall next to us. Yes. Um, so if there's any interruptions. What do you think would be more irritating out of the two? <laughs> well, I you had to say. Like, <laughs> I'd, I'd, Having only heard the drilling and not not the highest one, I'm gonna go drilling for now. Okay, right. Yeah. Well, we'll see, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see. see. <laughs> so now obviously we've got, we've got lots of lots to cover. We've got some readers questions. Um, want to talk about cycling uh, and also obviously motorsport of which you're, you're basically kind of busy every single weekend, you were just saying. Um, I think to start with, if I, I read somewhere that you were inspired by ET. Yes. Yes, to, I was. To go cycling?
1: Um, yeah, I was, oh, I guess I was about six years of age, and it was just just before BMX was, was kind of hitting the, you know, the shores in the UK. It, it, it was a phenomenon in the US at that point. And I watched the film E.T., and it wasn't the scene where you know they're flying off into the sky. It was the, the, the chase scene at the end, where the kids are on BMX bikes. They're going over jumps. They're going around corners. In a way that I'd never seen a bike used before, and I was just thought I thought this is amazing. I'd love to give it a go. So immediately asked my parents for a BMX bike. I think they thought it was going to be a passing fad. So you know they said, "Well, we'll get you a bike." Um, well, it'll be a BMX, and it clearly wasn't. They got it from uh, a jumbo sale for <laughs> five pounds. My dad resprayed it black and he put BMX stickers, <laughs> BMX handlebars on it, and to me it was a BMX, and that was that was what got me started. Mm.
0: And but you were it's actually I suppose what some of the sort of motorsport listeners won't know about is that obviously you you went into track cycling, but not until you had done quite a few years of BMX racing. Yes, that's right. I raced BMX from the age of seven till I was fourteen, and then I
1: tried mountain biking, road racing, time trialing. I was pretty much rubbish at all of all those things, Um, and then found the track, and I wasn't that great initially, but I loved it. It was the speed. It was the the intensity of the competition. Um, There was a track in Edinburgh near where I lived, so I had the access to this facility. At the time, there were only two sort of international standard tracks in the UK, so I happened to live, you know, two or three miles from from one of those, which was just amazing luck, because if the the facility hadn't been there, I wouldn't have um, had
0: the chance. And with the BMX racing, do you think, sort of looking back on that now, that gave you a founding, kind of once you got into your track cycling, you changed from, you know, the, the kilometre sprint through to the Kieran, there's all the tactics did that have an influence do you yeah well the,
1: the, i think the best thing about bmx was that no matter how good you were at it and i was i was good but not brilliant at it you know even if you were very very strong and very quick you would you couldn't win all the time because there were too many variables it's a bit like motorsport um you had to learn to lose at a young age oh, where I do, I've, I've done that brilliantly well <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah me too to be fair um so yeah it was just uh, you know i think that you you, you couldn't get too carried away with it even the really quick guys they, they they would fall off they would get knocked off they would you know there was there was lots of variables eight guys going out of start and get into the first corner all trying to you know to to get get the whole shot get the lead and you know inevitably crashes happen so at the age of eight nine ten you're learning that you know it doesn't always go your way that you've got to bounce back you've got to be resilient you've got to give your best and even if you do you know you, there's no guarantees so I think it was a really good grounding. Apart from the obvious, you know, bike handling and, and the, the actual physical side of things,
0: I think mentally it was a great start. Now we've got a, a question here um, that sort of ties in quite nicely at the moment uh, from Will Donaldson about your early cycling at Meadowbank, um, which is an early, what well, is in sort of 1980s, early 1980s Commonwealth Games track, but yep. it wasn't in the best of condition. No,
1: no, it was. Well, <laughs> they, but they built the track for the 1970 games, and then. They redid it for the 1986 games. And at the time, they had the opportunity to put a roof on it. um, And apparently, there was this local um, entrepreneur businessman who had the money and and was willing to pay for the roof to be put on it if they'd called the bell drum after him. And the the councillor said, no way. So they left the roof off it in Edinburgh, you know, which obviously is not renowned for its glorious weather all the time. Um, and during the Commonwealth Games, it was rain, you know, literally, it was. I think it was called the, the Welly Drome. that was what they nicknamed it. <laughs> it was raining all week, and they only just got all the, the racing completed. Um, so we, we had to, we inherited this amazing track. It was fantastic to have a, a velodrome in your home city, but it was just this common theme of you'd come down on a Tuesday night for track league, and you'd get warmed up, you'd go up for the first race, a few spots of rain, and then it would downpour for, you know, ten minutes and the track would be wet for the next hour, you'd sit and wait for another hour, you'd just about get back out again, it would rain again, and it was it was incredibly frustrating, but um, but it was a great track, and you know, that, that's, you always remember, or I always remember that first feeling coming down the, the stairs under the tunnel and popping up in the track centre and just looking around at this incredible track, and it was really intimidating, all Veldrums are the first time you go in when you're about to, to cycle on them, super steep bankings, the TV never gives it, you know, that kind of sense of how steep they are, and yeah, I just loved it. It was one of these things
0: a bit like motorsport that you try it once and you get hooked and, and you want to do it again and again. I was going to ask cuz the I mean, we we'll, we'll talk more about cycling, but your introduction to motorsport, you know, was very much your sort of cycling career finish and then you, you went into the radical SR1 car. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you you must have been very aware of motorsport long before your cycling career. Yes. Ended. Yeah, I was well I was a huge fan of Colin McRae. Obviously, being Scottish, you know,
1: we didn't have many world champions back in the, in the 90s in any sport. Um, but I think watching Colin and his style of driving, his full commitment, his just this infectious um, personality that you, you you were drawn towards watching and supporting him. Um, so, yeah, Colin, I have Colin to thank for for my real kind of passion for motorsport. But even before then, you know, as a kid, I had a Skeletric set with the, the two 911 um, Le Mans cars with the lights that came on. And I remember asking my dad, you know, why do they have lights and the other cars don't? And he said, well, that's for Le Mans. It's a 24-hour race. They race through the night. And that was the first uh, spark of interest in Le Mans. So, yeah, I guess I've always been, you know, in Formula One as well. You can't avoid it. It's everywhere. And particularly in the 90s, it was 80s and 90s. It was, um, you know, big news all the time. So, yeah, it's it's something I've always been a fan of and and passionate about, but never really even, it wasn't even a a dream to compete. I, I just never thought it would be a possibility. It was so far away from reality that I would, Why would I ever think I could get to compete, you know, on four wheels?
0: We'll we'll, we'll talk about Le Mans in a bit, but you mentioned there, obviously, looking up to Colin McRae. With cycling, it it was kind of, it was during your career that British cycling kind of just, you know, to to those of us outside of it, it kind of re-emerged and was at the forefront of everyone's mind and kind of young kids uh, who were growing up when you were at the Olympics, they had people to emulate and people to, to look up to and say oh, I want to do that but when you started certainly in Scotland there wasn't there wasn't really that what, what no. was it that kind of hooked you and got you
1: into? Um, I, th- I just think it was initially just the the enjoyment of, of racing and, and riding on the track it was a really fun thing to do we I mean, had a really strong club and a great atmosphere a good social side and um, to the track racing scene because when you're at a race, you sort of turn up, you, you get your little seat in the track centre, and then you do a race that lasts a few seconds or a few minutes. You come back down, you sit and chat. You're going up and down all all day, so you spend a lot of time just sitting, talking, and and you make a really you know strong sort of you know social network from that. So I enjoyed that part of it, but there was never any possibility of making it as you know an international or even doing it full time. Winning medals was was just it, you know it, it was it was a pipe dream at that time. Um, the biggest change or we always—I had one person to really look up to, one person that was achieving on the highest level without any support, and that was Graham O'Bree, who was this Scottish sort of maverick rider who competed against Chris Boardman in the early 90s. And Chris had full factory support; he had, you know, the the, the big sponsors. He had Peter Keen, who was this sports scientist who had all the new ideas, revolutionary ways to to train. And and Graham built his own bikes with with his own two hands. He actually welded bits of scrap metal together. He got an old washing machine and took the bearings, because his, his philosophy was, well, a washing machine spins at, you know, 1200 RPM, so I'm only gonna be pedaling at 150 RPM, so these bearings must be really good, so I'm going to take these bearings out of this washing machine and use them in my bike. He, he looked at, you know, even things like how wide, how, how wide he wanted his knees to be, how close he wanted to get them together to be as aero as possible, and this is all without wind tunnels and any kind of support. And he decided that he had to, so he had to build this special narrow bottom bracket and use these bearings for it. He changed his whole riding position. He went into a skier's position. So he tucked his arms up instead of having the arms in front. um, Changed everything, came out and he won the world title, broke the world record, beat Chris Boardman. The the governing body were absolutely shocked by this. And they said, well, you know, we can't have an amateur coming out and breaking all these records. So they banned the position that he was riding in. So he went away and thought about it and came back with a second position that was, known as the Superman position with his arms straight in front and he broke the rec- record again became world champion again just an amazing, amazing guy if you ever get a chance, there's a film called um, The Flying Scotsman and Johnny e. Lee Miller plays Graham in, in the film and it's 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 quite, you know, it's an amazing amazing film, it's very true to, to the real story, to his life, he's written a book about his life as well his autobiography, um, and there's some sad bits in it too, he struggled with mental illness in his life and attempted suicide and all sorts, um, but it's yeah it's a really poignant story, and, and Graham's still going strong now, and he's still my hero so um yeah graham is is a, a, an amazing guy so if anyone gets a chance to to do a bit more research about him, I would yeah, thoroughly recommend it
0: that is exactly what I'm going to be doing after this actually <laughs> but it's, it's it's funny isn't it there's, there's kind of parallels with motorsport and cycling you know it's the underdog story that mm. people love and and ingenuity does get you sort of to the front um i really I really want to talk about the kind of the British team's mentality and how you found sort of nths of seconds in a bit um but am I right in thinking you also you, you were almost a professional rower? Um, no, I, well so you were on the junior you were on the junior I, I, yeah, team, I, I, which I, is I a lot loved, further than live. <laughs>
1: Actually, I love rowing. Um, yeah, I did it at school. I got I represented Scotland at the junior level at the home the home countries. I, I'll say that's, that's
0: almost professional <laughs> well, from yeah. my perspective. It
1: was. I, you know, I I love rowing and I, I do miss it actually. And I got a chance to go rowing with Steve Redgrave um, a couple of years ago. I did a documentary about various sportsmen and women who were very successful, and I was interviewing them and asking them about what made them champions. And I got to go out in a pair with Steve Redgrave on the canal in Edinburgh, where I used to row from my old boat club. And
0: that was, yeah, that was a dream come true. Mm. Now, your kind of what, once you, you you were sort of fully professional, a track cyclist. When you were saying that you never in your wildest dreams could imagine. You know, winning Olympic medals, being world champion 11 times. When did the penny drop? Was it the first medal or was it the first gold? Or? Yeah,
1: I, I think it was it was a couple of moments, really. For, well, first of all, to make it happen, you had to have the support. We didn't have any support. We didn't have any financial backing. The velodrome being built in Manchester was, was crucial because it was an indoor track, so you could train 12 months of the year. Up until that point, you couldn't train you know, in the winter not, months. Not at metabank. Exactly. <laughs> so we had this facility, and that was great, but then we didn't have the money to rent it out. So British Cycling had two full-time members of staff, and that was it. the rest of the time you know they would have i think they had two weekends a month that they could afford to rent the velodrome so we had this facility but we couldn't use it so there were cat shows there were tory party conferences there were cheerleading competitions all sorts of stuff happening in the track center but we couldn't afford to rent the track out to use it so i was at university in st andrews i was coming down twice a month to train for three days in a row and the rest of the time just training on indoor trainers or out on the road and you know, there's no way you can compete against the the top guys in the world doing doing it that way. Um, but it was it was in 1997, end of 97, beginning of 98. The national lottery started, and the lottery fund was was created for for sport and for good causes. So it meant that we were given this uh, very fortunate to receive this grant. You know, an annual grant. I got ten thousand pounds, which meant I could pay my rent. I could pay for travel up and down to Manchester. I could pay for food and it was it was a lifeline it was like a million pounds it was like this this you know this opportunity to go professional so I left university when I graduated in 99 went full time on the bike thinking it might happen for a year or two and I guess it was in 2000 I got to the Olympics as part of the team sprint and it was when I saw my teammate Jason Quealy win the gold in the kilo that was the point when I suddenly thought well He's just Jason. He's just my <laughs> teammate. He's, he's a normal guy. He's got two arms, two legs. He's not some sort of superhuman um, who I, I kind of maybe put the Olympic champions up on a pedestal before that point and realized that, you know, it's possible. And I didn't think I was the same level as Jason, but I thought, well, if he can do it, <clears throat> maybe potentially in a few years' time, I could be close to that. And to have you, the Olympic champion in your team to train with every day to help sort of drag you up to that level, um, that was a huge opportunity.
0: N- fast-forwarding to the 2004 olympics in athens and the sea level kilo so the, the kilo forwards um you know f- for readers who don't know or listeners who don't know is basically the kilometer that's right yeah, yeah.
1: 1000 meters against the
0: clock you're not racing you know just one rider it's a time trial one
1: one race there's no heats no qualifying so you turn up and it's just everything in, in over four laps and it's the most painful thing <laughs> you can possibly do i mean it's only a minute but the the pain that you can put yourself through in those last 20 seconds it's indescribable. So yeah, it's a, it's a, the race of truth. You know, there, there's no, there's no hiding, there's no tactics, there's
0: no room for interpretation. It's just all out for one minute. And, but that, that particular one, you were, uh, didn't you, didn't you get injured two weeks before? Um, and so you, yeah. you
1: went last. Yeah, I was last. And and it was reverse, reverse order in seeding. So I'd won the world championships um, the year before. And it basically, yeah, you you kind of sit, uh, sit there and watch your competitors post their times. And yeah, about seven days before, I got I, I crashed in the village on the bike. My last sort of ride, I just finished a training session on the indoor bike. I gone out for a little cool down ride around the village. Came up to a roundabout, and there was this bus driver coming towards the roundabout. I had right to way, but he just kept coming, and I had to sort of try and get through in front of him because I thought he's going to hit me. And I went too fast around the roundabout, hot tarmac in in Athens, slid out, and had a bit of a tumble. Thankfully it was just road rash and, you know, nothing too serious. But it was one of those moments you think, oh, you know, you could have easily broken a wrist or a collarbone and, and that would have been the the game's over. So I was very lucky there. On the night itself, it was just yeah, one of these one of these things you look back on now and it's it's great with hindsight, but at the time it was it was terrifying because um four riders to go, the Australian rider Shane Kelly, he broke the world records, so had to stand there and watch him break the world record, go faster than any of, anyone had ever gone before. The next guy Uh, Stefan Nimke from Germany did it again. And then right before I went to the start line, um, the Frenchman Arno Tourno, my big rival, he went under 61 seconds um, for the first time ever. And it was just this feeling of, right now, a personal best will only get me fourth place. You know, this is, you know, and and if you start dwelling on that and thinking about it too much, you're kind of like a rabbit in the headlights. So it was just about focusing on the process of what I had to do to get the best ride from myself, not worry about the times. I had no control over that at all. um, And really just block everything out you know you focus on on exactly what you wanted to do to get the best result and and thankfully it worked out
0: And but you, you broke you broke the world record pretty much on every lap
1: yeah well it's it's funny because you're not you're not pacing it it's not like in, in longer events the coach would stand at the side and would give you feedback on how fast you're going and you write a schedule um but because it's essentially a sprint you're just kind of going all out but every split every time you come round at the end of each lap for the four laps, you get the split that goes up on the screen. And you don't see that, but you can hear the crowd respond to what's happening on the. So yeah, I kind of, at the end of the first lap was a huge roar um, and I remember thinking, there's only two things actually I can remember from the race. I remember thinking, that's brilliant, I must be up. And then the second thought that popped into my head was, wait a minute.
0: Maybe they're French supporters. Well, exactly. (laughs) Because I was
1: in Stuttgart two years before and at every split there was a huge roar and I crossed the line Massive roar, I looked up at the scoreboard and I was fourth and it was because I was down on the Germans' time. They were cheering for the Germans. So I remember thinking, they might not be cheering for you. <laughs> just keep going. Um, and then the rest is a bit of a blur, really. I've watched, I've watched the video so many times over the years that your memory becomes the video. You, know, you start to lose that first person perspective um, and you just remember what the video and, and the commentary, I could give you the commentary back from Hugh Porter word for word virtually. Um, <laughs> But it's, yeah, it's funny, I mean, that's what, 15 years ago now, so, um, yeah, almost a lifetime ago in, t- in many ways, to what's, what's happened since then, but yeah.
0: So how do, how do you train for something that lasts for a minute, you know, that is kind of full power? Yeah. So I, was, I, I can't remember, there was a TV programme, I'm sure, where you basically, you got onto a bike and they wanted to see what your max wattage was, mm-hmm. and you'd literally like a few strokes the leg, mm-hmm. and, and that was it, mm-hmm. and the wattage was was off the
1: chart. So basically what you would do, if you got, like any event you're training for, you would assess the, the kind of energy systems that you're using in, within your body. So because I'm not doing, you know, the Tour de France or long distance stuff, I don't need to have that aerobic efficiency. I need to have the ability to produce as much energy in as short a space of time as possible. So... Within that minute, you need to have the, the power and the strength to get the bike off the line to accelerate up to speed. You've got one gear and it's a, a big old gear, so you need to have a lot of torque to get that that bike going. So you do a lot of strength work, maximal strength work, really explosive power. You need to have the ability to hit high peak power, which is you know obviously different to torque. So you train for maybe sort of doing five to ten second efforts that produce a lot of power in a very short space of time. And then you have to have the ability to hang on to the the speed once the fatigue sets in. So after about twenty seconds, the lactic acid in your muscles starts to build up and up and up. And then within the last probably the last fifteen or twenty seconds, the last lap and a half, your body is it's it's like it's drowning in lactic acid. You're kinda of gone beyond this point where you can I mean it's the the pain is hard to explain and you, you know, the, if you actually look at the power trace, you're, you hit peak power after about three or four seconds, and then the power just cont- continuously comes down and down and down, even though the, the speed is actually relatively consistent, uh, relatively constant, this, the power comes down and down and down, so at the end, you're probably crossing the line at doing about 300 watts, and you're peaking at about 2,500 watts, so you, it's this fatigue gradient which, you know, it's, and if you do it more efficiently, if you did a kind of flatter curve, you would never get up to high enough peak speed, so you have to you you front load it, you put so much effort into that first lap and then hang on and it's it's grim it's it's one of the hardest things you know trying to explain how sore it is and and you I guess you'd think well, but you're professional, you train for that, you know you should be fit enough that you can deal with that, but the more power you can produce, the more pain it causes so it's almost like the fitter you get, the harder <laughs> you can push yourself so but it's, um, yeah, the, the the training we do to, to sort of create the lactic acid, you do very short efforts, maybe 30-second efforts with a minute recovery, and you do that four times in a row. So sprint for 30 seconds, rest for 60, sprint for 30, rest for 60, four times, and then you would just collapse off the bike and lie in a kind of fetal position for usually about 15 minutes. And as you're lying there, your 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 body feels like, you know, something's wrong here, I shouldn't be feeling this bad, I'm never doing this again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm clearly ill, I'm gonna have a, a day off. And then you get out of that sort of 15 minutes and you pop out and you feel fine, you go, right, okay, let's do another set, and you just do it again and again, and yeah, there were some days where you'd, you'd come out of the, the training session in the lab, just you and the coach, no one watching you, no crowds, no no nobody has witnessed any of it, but you would feel almost as elated as some days when you've won other races just because you'd made a, a progression of five watts or ten watts over your, your personal best so it was always everything was measurable you, you, there was nowhere to hide you couldn't just sort of come in and go yeah i gave it everything today and you go well, hang on a minute let's look at the data you didn't know <laughs> you didn't so yeah it's it's there's parts of my career i really miss but that definitely isn't isn't one of them i mean it's
0: yeah a lot of pain so it's the obviously the the fitness there's a we've got to Question here um, from uh, Matt uh, Stelmacher, um, and it's sort of it's kind of related to this, and it's, he's, he's asking what the key skill is that you've been able to bring from cycling into long distance endurance, endurance racing, and I, I'm guessing it's more the Kieran in mm-hmm. terms of the actual yep. racing with other people. Yeah,
1: the biggest thing, Is the ability to focus and the ability to block out distractions so it's exactly the same um you know like in the kieran or the kilo at the start if you start dwelling on what happens if i win what happens if i lose he's looking he's looking like it's gonna be fast today or you know uh, the conditions or the crowd or as soon as you're looking at things that have absolutely no bearing on your own performance it's taking your, your mental concentration away from that so in the car if i'm coming towards a corner coming towards porsche curves at le mans at night Thinking, I'm doing 140 miles an hour here. You know, this is supposed to be just a lift and turn in. That wall looks pretty close. You know, if I get this wrong, oh, there might be oil here. What happens if I hit? You know, if I hit the wall, it will be disaster. As soon as you dwell on the things that could go wrong, it's it kind of massively increases your chance of doing that. So, you know, even even in mountain biking, if you're going down a hill, the key thing is always to look exactly where you want to go. You don't look at the things you're trying to avoid. Which is the same in motor racing, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So you, you you focus on the line. You, you try and increase your vision, you try and look through the corner. Um, and these are the things that I knew from cycling that I, I passed across to motorsport. But they're completely different skills. So, you know, it's you come into it and you have the competitive instinct, you have the desire to go fast, you have the desire to win. But, yeah, you learn very quickly that it's going to be, a, you know, you're starting at the very, very bottom level. Um, but that's part of what drew me to it. I quite enjoyed the thought of a new challenge that every time I get in the car, I'm going to be significantly better. Whereas on the bike, you know, you were, spending a whole year or four-year cycle trying to improve maybe half a tenth of a second. You know, the margins were so small, you were so close to the top level that you didn't have the headroom to improve. But in the
0: car, I've got got a long way to improve, which is which is good. And did you were you surprised by the sort of the physicality of racing? Cause I, I, for, for lots of people, lots of my friends always ask, why do racing drivers have to be so fit? Because they ultimately sit in a car and they turn it. It's, I think it
1: depends on the type of car. I think it depends on your level. So... You could get somebody who has huge amount of experience and skill, and they could go around without, you know, barely raising their heart rate and barely breaking a sweat. But for me, I just stepped off being a, you know, a full-time professional athlete at the Olympic level, and I would jump into a car, and I would come out of the car just exhausted, sweating, and and completely shattered. But the the, the fatigue wasn't coming from the, f- the physical effort of using your muscles to turn the steering wheel or apply the brake. It was the concentration. It was the stress. It was your brain was working at full capacity, just trying to deal with all this information. And you, you get out the car, and you're you're exhausted. But I think the more skillful you are, the more you can do stuff automatically. The more natural it is to you. If you've been driving carts since you were five, and you're now you know in your teens or twenties, and you're a pro driver, you do it. You know you're on autopilot. Autopilot when you're doing the racing, and you're using your brain to think about strategy or think ahead or deal with other things. Um, so the physical side, until you get up to the cars have a lot of downforce. It's not that physically physically hard, but it's hugely hard in terms of your concentration, emotions, everything. You come out of the car and
0: you're 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 shattered. It's interesting what you were saying about the focus, though. And obviously, as as an Olympian, you have that app, that ability to to focus absolutely on something. And I was I was doing a little bit of kind of digging around in terms of um, you're obviously doing Le Mans and things like that. Uh, so you were the first summer Olympian to compete at Le Mans, but you were actually the ninth former Olympian who really? competing really? at Le Mans, and the second Olympian champion to do so. Wow! So is it mainly winter sports? It's winter sports, so the skiing, that seems yeah. to translate. That's interesting to motor racing. Yeah. So, but there's obviously there's there's something there mm. coming from the Olympics to to motor racing. I guess it's, you know, you have athletes who have focused on one
1: one thing and they're incredibly driven and they have the desire to aim towards a goal and work towards something, and then they retire. And then it's this feeling, of well, what next? And you can have other focuses and it's good to have a bit of variety and a bit of, just a bit of balance in your life when you, you've gone from doing one thing to the end degree. You know, it's nice to have a, a more of a normal life, but you do miss that that challenge and and that focus. And motorsport, I think it's 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 high up on the list because it's just a fun thing to do and it's an opportunity that if you get the chance to do it you, you want to grab it with, with both hands but i think you could see why skiers or bobsleigh guys or anybody that's involved in a high speed um highly skillful sport that, that needs to, to think ahead and plan ahead the translation into motorsport would be um pretty good yeah
0: so just before we kind of move on to the motorsport um side of it i wanted to talk about 2012 obviously the the london olympics uh, kind of in, I suppose, in some sense, a dream come true for you having the, the Olympics in London. You retired the, the following year. So I guess you always knew this was your, your final.
1: Order. Yeah, I, I, ideally, I would love to go on to, to Glasgow for the Commonwealth Games in 2014. But I think my body had just about had enough um, of all those nasty sessions in the lab and everything else. It was, yeah, I w- I, in many ways, looking back now, you you, you kind of gloss over the, the tough times. Um, so in 2008, it was in a fantastic Games. I got three gold medals in Beijing. And it was you know, just a, a very significant moment in my career. But then shortly afterwards, when I came back into training, um, went to the first race after the Olympics and I crashed and, and really t- damaged my hip quite badly. And I was off the bike for 10 weeks, missed the world championships. And then from then on, it was quite a struggle. Um, just to actually get to London to be selected, because only one rider per nation per event was allowed. They
0: changed the rules. That was slightly in light of how well Britain was doing. Yeah, which, I mean, if, if you told on twenty years before that that was going to happen, <laughs> I
1: mean, we weren't even, you know, a B or a C grade nation in Britain. We were, we were just, you know, the bottom of the 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 pile basically back in the day, and then to think that within sort of fifteen years we'd managed to become such a dominant nation that the the powers that be didn't want us to, to be winning gold and silver in each event. They wanted just one person. But if you imagine in athletics saying, well, one Jamaican, one American, you know, you're not allowed to have more than one per nation. There would be an outcry because you want the best athletes in the world to be at the Olympic games. Um, so they changed this, they, they changed it after London, which didn't really help me, but for London, it meant that, you know, I had a teammate and Jason Kenny who was the quickest in the world. The two of us were kind of one and two in the world in the two individual events. Um, so the choice had to be made: do do we, you know, divide and conquer, or does one person get the chance to do both events? And in the end, it was the right choice, I think. You know, I'd love to have defended all three titles, but Jason was going better than me in the sprint. I was going better than him in the Kieran, and together we joined forces with Philip Hines and we won the team sprint. So I got two gold medals. Jason got two, and Phil got his one in the team sprint. Um, but it was, yeah, it was the the dream ending, and I think that Athens up until that point was the most dramatic night. It was the you know the first time you become Olympic champion. Everything about that night, it was so special. I never thought anything could compare to it. But the final night, winning the Kieran, it was the last event of the track program. So everybody had sort of gathered in the track center to watch it. The stands were full. It was, by the nature of the event, it's a very unpredictable um, thing to win. And yeah, it, I almost, it was like within inches of, of all being over, the German rider, my main rival Max Levy, he almost passed me with a half lap to go and if he'd just cleared my front wheel he could have come down and shut the door but I just managed to hang on prevent that overlap or keep that overlap there and then through the last corner held the line on the inside and came past him and the roar, I mean the noise that night I'll never forget that just, you know, you talk about the, the, the effect of a home crowd, it was something special and then I won the gold medal standing behind the podium waiting for the presentation normally once I got on and you hear the anthems then a the little tear comes out I couldn't I couldn't even hold it in before I got onto the podium I was in an, an absolute mess um because I, I was picking out faces in the crowd I could see you know, obviously my coaches and the support team but then you see other guys that you know your rivals they're their coaches you see friends and family in the stand you see people that have been there since the very beginning and if it, I, I guess I had this moment to sort of flashback through my whole career, realizing this is the last moment I'm gonna step on the, the podium at the Olympic games. I thought back to Sydney in 2000 when I got a silver medal with the team at the time, thinking if if this is all I ever get in my career, I'll be happy. Um, so yeah, to finish with six golds and a silver, and just to be so grateful, I'd had this this fantastic career, so many great memories. It was, it was the perfect send off. And it was having that home Olympics that really inspired me for the last two or three years, which were very tough. To get to the games, to keep working,
0: just to experience that that moment. I, d- I remember watching that race, standing up in front of the TV. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. There's no way. There's no one was no one was sitting down in the room, but there was there was that the wonderful thing about the British the the London Olympics was just this f- amazing feeling of goodwill. And I was in the I was in the Olympic Village a couple of times to watch some of the sports, and it was just an amazing atmosphere. Mm. And it was yeah, I mean, what what a what a way to sign out.
1: It's just it's kind of sad because you think well. You know that was seven years ago, and you think, look at our country now, and look at the country then. We were so united, and it was such a feeling of, do you know what? Look at what we can achieve, and wow, isn't this great? And there were so many, there were so many doubters leading into the games. The transport's going to be terrible. The weather's going to be awful. We're not going to win any medals. It's going to be a disaster. And almost from the moment of the open, you know start of the opening ceremony, when it all kicked off, and everybody sat back and got thought, this, oh, this was is, this is good. really good, and <laughs> wow, you know it's not raining yet, and look at all the crowds and. And it was just a wonderful time. People were talking on the tube and, you know, I used to open the curtains on the balcony. We were on the edge of the village. We had a really nice spot, top floor, and it looked across onto the main stadium. And every morning you'd open your curtains and you see these tens of thousands of people flooding into Olympic Park. And it was just, you know, trying to soak it in and realise, you know what, this is This is a temporary thing. This, this is for two weeks, three weeks. You know, th- this is something you'll remember for the rest of your life. And... Yeah, it was, it was a magical time, and even getting to carry the flag in for the opening ceremony myself, I remember thinking at the time, if, if this is all I get from these games, if I don't win a medal, the last four years of hard work has been worth it to get to this point, because when you walk in and you hear David Bowie heroes, and the crowd goes wild, and you realise that you're leading in the nation at the home Olympic Games, you know, these are these are the things that when you're growing up, you, you just assume will happen to someone else. You never think it's going to happen to you, so... Yeah, it was it was a magical time and it is, it is sad when you think that you know in such a short space of time the country's so divided and there's so many things that you know you turn the news on and you think oh god you know can it get any worse <laughs> but um yeah let's have another olympic game yeah. shall we yeah sport
0: unites sport <laughs> yeah. unites. so moving on to motorsport we would t- you were saying how obviously the the ability to focus was a huge help some of the kind of your racing tactics from the kieran helped was the was this something you struggled with when you first yeah. took a car on track?
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, I think the biggest thing was understanding that you know there are so many more variables. Certainly, when I started racing, it was about you, you can't control the end result. You know, it doesn't matter how well prepared you are or the car is. There's so many things that can go right or go wrong. The fact that cars just break, think you know, components break out of nowhere, and it could be on the last lap. But Look at Toyota in you know at Le Mans. It's just you know to get that far in a 24-hour race and it's not just about the 24-hour race it's about the whole year or sometimes 5 6 years building up to that moment of developing the car getting the team together everything that goes towards um such a huge huge challenge and it can go wrong any time at any stage and and it's understanding that and realizing that you you can't focus on the end result again bringing it back to cycling focus on the process of what you need to do and understanding that yeah it's it's a <laughs> Don't worry about the end result it'll take care of itself winning or losing it's almost it's not irrelevant that's the aim is to win but the, the aim is to go out there personally and do the best job you can um but in terms of driving on track i think it was initially very committed overly committed and making lots of mistakes and i was encouraged to do that by i had andy wallace who was my um instructor at radical and roger green and they were saying yeah if you're not spinning you're not trying hard enough to keep going and and then it's getting to the point where you realise actually when you're upside down in a barrier. Yes, exactly. It's, <laughs> Andy, your are <sacs. laughs> Yeah, but he was great. He used to sit with me in the passenger seat, and you know we would, you know, we had a spin at Bedford, and he said, oh, "Don't worry, it's a great place. There's nothing to hit." But the one place there is a wall. There's a kind of pit wall coming down the back straight. Eh, not pit wall, just a, a tire wall. And I touched the white line on braking, and it was a little bit damp still. And I spun the car, and it was like you know tire wall grass, tire wall grass, <laughs> spun it missed the wall came to a stop and he just turned to me and said well that was exciting <laughs> <laughs> you did very well you put your foot on the clutch you know and I was like oh, my heart it was like about like, 180 "God." but yeah he's you know he was, he's a legend Andy but um, yeah he was really great help in the early days and just I guess in a car like the Radical SR1 it's actually not got a lot of downforce a lot of people assume they're similar to the, the SR3 or the SR8 very low grip so the car's moving around so you do learn a lot about um, the dynamics of the car and about your inputs and how they affect that but it was, I just find it so exciting and, and I love the speed and I love the focus and I love the fact that like cycling when when I was in the car on track, nothing else in the world was existing apart from the next braking point, the next apex You know, it was just, you, you immerse yourself in this experience and you finish and you kind of, it's almost like you've come up for air you're like, oh yeah there's something else happening in the world today, it's not just about driving a car on a track it's, um, yeah, it's a, it was a fantastic experience
0: so when's when did you when you started? Were you thinking right? I'm going to see if I could get Lamont to, to Lamont. We'll see how it goes. Or was that something that came later? Did you, was it just some fun? To start well, it, with?
1: it was just for just for the sake of doing it, and it was filming a documentary about Colm um Which That was excellent, by that, the way. Oh, thank so you. Yeah, really, I, it
0: was a real privilege
1: to do it, and quite quite difficult to do it as well because you know you're going in to meet his family who you know have since Colin's accident they you know they didn't really want to speak the media too much understandably and but they welcomed me in and you know it's just so much fun with Jimmy you know all the adventures he's still a hooligan at heart and mm-hmm. taking me out and and just you know embracing you know bringing me in and sh- you know welcoming to the family and just yeah they were they were fantastic but the first day I remember going to the filming up at the farm and just thinking this is this is tricky because you know they're wel- welcoming a film crew into their their home and they're going to talk about something that's still com- very very raw um but it was yeah a privilege to do so it was it was filming that documentary that we did a little scene of me out on the track at Alton Park in my own track car in the Lotus 211 and um Roger Green came down he was at the time i well, would just finished working at Evo and he was um working for Radical and I was a big fan of Evo and reading you know obviously motorsport as well, well of course <laughs> yeah and <laughs> um, <laughs> there are no other <laughs> ma- there are yeah. no other magazines and um yeah, and I went over and ch- chatted to Roger, and he said, you know, have you thought about racing? And he, I said, well, not really, because, you know, I have, n- I have no idea how you get into it. Um, he said, well, we can get you out in a car, you know, do some testing, and if you like it, we can get you through your arts test, and, and there's a, a novice race series starting next year we're going to run, and we'd love to put you in a car for that. So it all it all spiralled from from that documentary about Colin. So, um, yeah, at that point, I think it was when we were testing, and Andy, you know, I was introduced to Andy. And they said, well, you know, if you keep on this, you could, Le Mans is an achievable goal, you know, because you can go there as an amateur driver. And I just dismissed that. And then, oh yeah, whatever, you know, I'll stick with the the, the SR1 to start off with. And then it was in 2015 when I was working with Nissan as part of their Olympic partnership. um, And they said, you know, we'll have a look at you, see what you like in the car. And when we did a test, they said, well, let's make the the end goal Le Mans. You know, got three years to get there. And they were, you know, amazing at, at bringing through gamers through to you know the highest level professional drivers so they had a chance i had a chance to sort of piggyback that program the gt academy um and it was yeah just this pipe dream initially and as the time went on and the you know they progressed through the ranks did british gt european Le Mans series and then it was you know we're going to do Le Mans next year and that was when i got the phone call to say it's on and we've got the team and we've got the got the car it was it suddenly
0: sort of dawned on me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this. This is, this is going to be me out there. So um, yeah, really, really exciting. And do, obviously, you're very used to walking into stadiums and performing in front of you know tens of thousands of people. You knew about Le Mans, You're obviously a fan of it and things like that. But I think a lot of drivers, even sort of professional race drivers who have raced from the age of six, um, still find it amazing when you arrive there and the enormity of it and it's not so much the place it's the whole week that goes yes, with it was that absolutely. the same with you? even 100 percent. and it was
1: the best thing i did was go there the year before and they allowed lmp3 cars to test on the official test day which they hadn't before so i got to drive it was absolutely t- atrocious day that was just rain non-stop the whole time but to get on the track and so to all experience those, it all,
0: those, all that time at Bank. yeah that's exactly what it, that's, exactly that's what it prepared i'm like for. a rain magnet
1: <laughs> um but it was yeah it, it was before you even get there you're driving down and then you see, you see your first sign for Le Mans and you suddenly go wow you know and the road signs just the, it's just so many things that bring the emotion and, and just um, the romance to the behind the event and, and you get there and then you recognise all these things you've seen on TV and I've been before you know as a fan to watch two or three times before and to be arriving there with a view to actually getting in the car and getting on the track is a very different feeling to, to arriving there as a fan but um, yeah I remember going out and just pulling out the pit lane, and it—you know—even as a kid with a skeletric set with a Dunlop bridge and all the things that you—you know—wow, like, I'm going under the Dunlop bridge for the first time. But it, for me, it was heading down the Mulsanne Street the first time, and you're sitting there, pinned flat to the floor, just thinking, "Here we go, this is it. We're on. I'm on the Mulsanne street, And then before you know it, you see these huge lights behind you, and it's Mark Webber and an LMP1 just going, <laughs> <laughs> "God Almighty!" Um, but yeah, it was everything about Le Mans was special, and you know, and there were so many stages to it as well. It wasn't like the the novelty wears off. The You know, for me, one of the best points was the nighttime stint. The first night stint I went out on and you pull out the pits in the dark and head down and that, that was just the, one of the highlights without doubt thinking this is, you know, one of the moments of, of my life. This is something I'll always remember. And what a privilege as well because so many people want to do it and not not just your average fan who, who goes there and says, I wonder what it'd be like to be in the track, but you know, really high-level professional drivers who have dedicated their lives to this profession and they still haven't had the opportunity to do it. So here's me, some numpty that used to ride bikes, you know, getting this chance to go out in an LMP2 car. I didn't, you know, I wanted to do the whole opportunity justice and not just turn up and take it lightly. So, yeah, for all the people that, that were wanting to be, I would love to be in my shoes, I wanted to do the best job
0: I could. And what what was the kind of... As from when you first stepped into a car, to, in terms of the SR1 and in, in sort of um, race capacity, through to Le Mans and things that you've done since, what's been the feedback like from the sort of motorsport community? Was it were they a bit difficult to start with? or
1: No, I, I think they were. I was really warmly welcomed. I think I, I genuinely think that the this motorsport community love it when people come in from other. You know areas because it it reaches a wider audience and people will take an interest in motorsport that maybe hadn't before and appreciate how hard it is and and how how amazing it is and you know that I guess most people if they're not into motorsport they'll be aware of motorsport through F1 you know every weekend through the summer they'll see F1 on the telly and they'll see these onboard shots of just the steering wheel and then turn and the car goes that way and the straight and turn. And you think, well, I drive a car every day. I go to, to drop the kids off at school. I can drive, so I could pretty much do what Lewis Hamilton does. And they have no no concept of 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 just the nuances, the skill, the, the 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 fact the cars are on the you know whether it's a Formula One car or you know Caterhams or whatever, any kind of championship in between. Every driver is pushing to the limit on every part of the circuit, and it's it's such a such a challenge and so exciting. And and it, I just think TV doesn't ever quite do it justice. Um, so. If you can get out there and spread the word and talk about it and people think, well, he seems quite passionate about this. It must be quite exciting. Then hopefully you're doing doing a very small job to to, to sort of spread the word.
0: And what, you know, we were talking earlier about your, you know, your kilo races, a minute, a maximum effort. A 24-hour race in a car is a hugely different thing. And I suppose Nissan would have kind of got you prepared for that. Was there anything that you found surprising in that process in terms of the, the lead to the 24-hour I, I th- I think,
1: um It was about trying to just break it into segments. So understanding that you don't think about it as a twenty-four-hour race. You think, right? Okay, I'm going to do. We're starting off with a double stint at five o'clock, and then you're going to be back in the car at eleven o'clock, or you know, and that's going to be a triple stint. Therefore, you know, that's going to be roughly X number of laps. Um, and during that time, you know. it's it's never thinking too far ahead. So you're never thinking, oh my God, I've been in the car for five minutes and I'm just, you know, I'm absolutely at capacity here. I can't deal with this, it's so intense. You know, you, you just think about, you're, it's almost like a hurdles race. You don't think about the hurdle you've just gone over or the one that's five or six down the line. It's just what's next, what am I doing next? Right, over this, onto the next one. And you just, it's just like a conveyor belt, one by one, minute by minute, lap by lap. And then before you know it, you get the call box, this lap, and you're coming in and you're like, whew, it passed in the blink of an eye. You know, a two and a half hour stint can just go like that, which which seems crazy. But the key to it, I guess, is relaxing at the points that you can relax on. And Le Mans actually probably a less physical circuit than, than many for a 24 hour race. You've got these, it's almost like flurries of activity and then recover and then flurries of activity and recover. But in that time you have to keep an eye on all the different dials and make sure everything's operating okay in the car. You've got to communicate with your your engineer. You've got to be super aware about what's happening around you because you know we've seen so many accidents at Le Mans with the huge speed differentials between the the categories. So when you're going along at night or even in the daytime and you see the the big bright white lights of the LMP1 coming the, the, up behind the you, blinding lights, they are blinding. Usefully. Yeah, so you can't even you can't even look at them. So as soon as you see your your, your mirrors light up, you don't look in the mirror. You, there's, the road ahead lights up, so you know they're coming, and you hold your line, and it's just like you kind of almost shut your eyes and hold your yeah. breath but the the worst moment for me the first time was when i assumed it was just two i could see there was it was more than one set of lights i thought right, there's two coming up behind and the one went past and the second one went past and i almost came back on the racing line and there was a third and it was just and then i thought you know that was it wasn't close in terms of i didn't actually make the move but it was close enough for me i was about to make that move so it was a great lesson of right you you do not do that until you're 100% sure um you know it's just doesn't bear thinking about um, if you get it wrong there and apart from anything else imagine being the person that ended the hopes of one of the, the porsches or the audis or the well, it's, it's happened many so times yeah exactly so um you didn't wa- i didn't want to be that guy um so it was yeah it, it's i guess you, you just don't think too far ahead you think about one lap at a time one one breaking point at a time and then before you know it, you're, you're called in and that's the end of your stint
0: and do, do you have an engineer on the radio though saying that lee battles coming up behind you do, do yeah. you get a bit of feedback on that. Yeah, obviously you do. On, a, on a on a bicycle. You absolutely did not.
1: Some some engineers and some teams are are better at that than others. Um, you know, some communicate really well, and even down to the simplicity of of you know at Le Mans the radio didn't work that well, so you had sections of the track where you could communicate and sections where you couldn't. This for, is for the cutting you, edge of motorsport. Like, exactly. Well, <laughs> yeah, there were all, we had all sorts of problems, and so on the f- my first stint, I think on the second lap coming into the Mozan corner at the end of the, the straight. Um, I locked up, and a really bad lock up on the front right, really bad flat spot, <laughs> to the point where, you know, you, you can't see out the windscreen, that it's vibrating so badly, and I'm thinking, and every time you get to a breaking point, it locks up on the same bit, makes it worse, worse, and you're just con- absolutely paranoid that I was gonna go through the, the canvas, and I was gonna get a puncture, and it was, you know, gonna be off at the start of the race. So I, I said, you know, I've got a flat spot really bad, I've gotta come in, but I could have had to wait till we came back into the, the, the zone that I could actually communicate. And the engineer was saying, well, you know, you've you've cut the tires up, you have to wait and see, you know, we're, we're discussing. And it turns out they didn't have any tires, hot tires ready to go. So they're having, and I watched the documentary afterwards where there was a documentary about the whole process of doing them on. And there's this, <laughs> this sort of comedy scene where you've got the, the head chief mechanic and the head engineer shouting at each other. <laughs> Where's the tire? We haven't got any tires. What well, cold ones? Well, well, you should have them. Just change one tire. They do that on Formula One. No, they don't, yes, they do. <laughs> I Meanwhile, I'm like, Am I coming in or not? And then it's like, but when, when you push the button, if they're talking, then you can't talk. You basically, I push the button to talk, and you can hear that they're discussing back and forth. So I couldn't say, Am I coming in? Am I? It was this really <laughs> stressful. Like, for the first stint it was the worst, worst possible start. Eventually I came in and they changed all four tires and they were cold. And I pulled out the pit lane off the limiter, foot down, and the car steps sideways. And I was like, whoa! And then <laughs> two seconds later, Chris, your, your tires are cold, so be <laughs> careful. I was like, "Yep, thank you. <laughs> Just spotted that. <laughs> so it got better from there, but that was that was quite a, quite a start to, to my first experience at Le Mans, yeah
0: baptism of fire I yes. do, well, I have to say, I'd, I would like to say I've had a very similar uh, experience but my only 24 hour race was the Citroen 2CV one oh, at Sneterton. Awesome! awesome. Um, uh, and uh, so really no insight at all into Le Mans but, that's, but it's, yeah, it but lasted for the same amount of time
1: Same. the thing is I don't think it matters what the car is or what the division is it's the same
0: the same camaraderie the same experience the same Build up, and did, did you finish the race? Yeah, so interesting. Uh, I I went to bed at kind of eleven, and I was mm. supposed to be back in the car at sort of five, six in the morning. But I got woken up at one in the morning, sleeping in a tent in the paddock. Yeah. Um, because one of the drivers couldn't actually see at night in the rain, <laughs> uh, which <laughs> which only became apparent at sort of one in the morning. Oh, so I had to get back in the car. But it's, it's really great watching sunrise and the, I mean, yeah. it's just there's something about a 24 hour race mm. that's, that's very, very magical. But, exactly. Um, there's.
1: Did you get emotional th- at the end when you crossed the line? Did you feel you'd really well, achieved re- something?
0: Yeah, I did. But. It was tcvs i know they've got lots of fans but yeah. the wellington straight at Snatterton is is very very long send an email <laughs> and, you, and, yeah. <laughs> and you can look over to, to someone <laughs> next to you to give them away it, um, so it's, a, it's a different form of racing and mm. um but it was a ama- it was a wonderful experience and mm. to get through it mm-hmm. was was incredible yeah, yeah yeah no it was really really good awesome um so just kind of fast-forwarding a bit to, to what you're doing now. Um, you've d- you've done so much in motorsport. It's it's kind of it's, it's quite amazing actually, it's, it's just really in six short years. Um, have you tested a Formula E car?
1: Um, I I just yeah I, I don't know if you can call it tested. A couple of laps at Rome this year. So um, yeah, I'm doing a series. Of sort of basically, it's me going in and trying different forms of motorsport. Um, it's a great way to try lots of different forms well, it's a great that. excuse isn't it, it's kind of how, <laughs> how do I get a chance to drive all these cars that I really want to drive we could pretend that we're making a we are making a real TV series <laughs> honest. Um, but yeah basically I go in there so it's there's um, World Rallycross Formula E, Monster Trucks which was insane um, doing some drifting doing Gymkhana and Porsche Super Cup um, so all these different forms meeting different people who have the best jobs in the world um, as racing drivers, and trying their cars out, so yeah, I, the, the rally, I mean, the, the, the tricky thing is that you, you have maybe one test day, in some cases no, no preparation, you go straight in and you just do it so you've got to really learn quickly and on your feet, but you're not going to complain when you get the chance to drive, I mean I, I did one test day at Pembrey, and then I was in at the top end in the supercar category at the World Rallycross against, you know, the, Timmy Hansen, Kevin Hansen, Marcus Grunholm's son, you know, these the, the best guys in the world um, and you're sitting in the start line doing your little burnout before you get up there, you know, handbrake on, 600 horsepower, bouncing off the limiter and there's like <laughs> five of you looking, at, six of you looking across thinking, what on earth am I doing here? <laughs> handbrake off, off you go. And it was, yeah, that was, I think the Rallycross um, experience has got to be up there with anything I've done in motorsport. It was, absolutely brilliant and such a warm friendly paddock as well I mean everywhere motorsport is always friendly but these guys were just really glad to have someone in and were interested in what I was doing and you know yeah the team with Ollie Bennett's team um, they were fantastic too so
0: yeah it was a great experience You've Very humble man for sort of people listening and watching as the Super Cup which is 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 widely regarded as one of the most competitive and quite a niche championship you need to know what you're doing you you know you performed really well in it
1: Um, well thank you oh that was yeah it was again you know i spoke to chris harris because he did it last year and you know he said look mate you're going to be at the back end of things don't worry about that it's tough the guy you know these are pro drivers the cars are tricky tricky things to handle um no abs no traction and it's all about the braking and it's easy to lock up so you kind of you put the willies up me a little bit at the start, like, but Cheers, Chris. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, but it was it was great because you you do go in there with very low expectations, and they have the what they call the VIP car. They have different sort of guests in usually once a year to drive it, and it was there was a great team, really professional. I had a test at Silverstone, and I was about four seconds off the pace, and then by quali at Silverstone at the race, I was uh, two point seven off pole, so I was. Delighted with that, you know, for on a two-minute lap, that was I was more than happy with that, and yeah, I think I finished. I beat about five or six guys, so I was I wasn't last, but um, it was more just getting around and driving relatively well for my standards and not making any mistakes, that was the key thing. I didn't want to be spinning off and causing a red flag. the British Grand Prix weekend. Yeah, exactly, when you've got (laughs) full stands, most people remember me for going into hay bales at Goodwood, so they go, oh, here's this Muppet again, you know. So I I didn't want to do anything stupid, so it was just about trying to be um, as
0: clinical and and clean and have a a good race, which, which I did for me. So I think you meant you described that as another sort of bucket list item ticked. Um, you've done Le Mans, you did all these amazing things you're doing for the series. Are there things out there that you haven't done that you want to do, or you, do you yeah. want to go back to Le Mans?
1: I'd, well, I'd love to go back to Le Mans because you learn so much, and and you feel like you've barely scratched the surface. I thought I might have done it and then tick the tick the box and then I can move on, but it it really got the bug. It got the bug, and you, you you learn so much that you want to apply all the things that you learned in that that experience. But on top of Le Mans. Bathurst 12 hour, Nurburgring 24. Um, mm. I'd love to do some more rallycross. I mean, that was just a taster for that. It really got me hooked. Um, I guess it, just any opportunity. And, and the key thing that I've learned, you know, at the weekend I was racing um, at Spa in the British GT in a Mustang GT4, Multimatic. You know, top level pro team, really amazing guys. And at the same time, I was doing the, the Caterham 420 Championship. On, you know, basically jumping at one car into the next. And you would assume that, well, you know, you've got the these, you know, top level teams, and then you've got this sort of thirty grand a year championship, which is just a sort of club level racing. But you know, the, the experience is just as intense and just as fun in the K as it is in GTS. So the key thing is, I think that it doesn't matter what level you're you're racing at. The, you know, talking about the Citroen two CVs. I bet that's pretty intense when you're in a battle and you're, you know, if you're fighting yeah. for the lead and you're bum drafting down yeah, the back, exactly. back straight, exactly. It doesn't 40 matter. Miles an it hour. doesn't matter what you do. You know, I, I honestly think that, you know, as long as you've got a team of people around you that care about it and are, you're all in it together. And you're having fun you know y- you can get so much in motorsport at any level so yeah. it's not just about the big ones of course i'd love to do all these iconic races but um just any opportunities you know i'm doing the spa six hour in a lotus land later on this year um i'm going to portemail doing a couple of races out there i've got spa this weekend again in a 911 gt2 rs club sport which has got oh, this your life is so t- terrible, <laughs> terrible sorry, <laughs> rubbing it in sorry yeah so yeah i'm i'm, I'm very lucky that i
0: get these opportunities and um, so when i get them you want to do them justice mm. so d- just quickly tell me a little bit about the Mustang because it, mm. it's a bit different yeah quite, quite new yeah um, and you're doing a few races in that
1: we well I just got two races so I had um, Donington last month and then Spa last weekend it's GT4 it is I guess the strengths of the, the Mustang are it's got really good high speed aero so through this uh, me- medium and high speed corners it's very stable you can really commit it's got really good traction out of the slower corners Straight line pace isn't as good as some of the other cars, so we struggled at Spa a little bit because of that. And the brakes, it's not quite as, you can't chuck it in quite as late as some of the other cars. It's quite a heavy car. But we did really well, at Donnington. we won at Donington, um, so there's two cars, there was the, the GT4 Silver Silver and the GT4 Pro-Am and the, the GT4 Silver Silver. They won their category and they're leading the championship and myself and Billy Johnson won the Pro-Am, which was a big surprise. Um, and then last weekend I raced with Andy Priol, and his son Seb was racing in the Silver Silver car um, with Scott Maxwell, and we were both sixth in our relative classes, so it was a bit tougher. We weren't quite up there with the, the faster cars and the straight line, but just so much fun. You know, it really is. It's a great car to drive, great team, um, and I learned a lot from from Andy. But it was, it was nice to be there that weekend because it's the first time that Andy and Seb had Raced side by side ever, so to have your son, I guess, can't imagine what it'd be like for Callum's five just now. I, I couldn't imagine
0: if he'd been old so enough, it's going to start get, getting expensive soon. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'll keep him
1: on two wheels, it's much, much cheaper, I think. Yeah,
0: yeah. now, um, sort of before we finish, th- anyone who follows you on Twitter, um, will do st- one of the this, I suppose, there's two ways to do social media, as um, you know, if you're, if you're very well known, and that's to basically ignore most people and sort of just keep tweeting, but you're really interactive, and a lot of that is with high bikes. Which is a relatively new, it's a, well it's, it's, it's a new brand of bicycles. Yes,
1: that? yeah, we set it up. Well, I started doing, well, when I, re- I guess when I retired, the, the question was what next? And I, I had to have things I was passionate about to really get my teeth into and really get focused on. So I decided to pick a number of things to do rather than just one you know, thing like with my, my cycling days. So motorsport was one but to start my own business, to, to make my own brand of bike and to start a range. And it started out with a couple of adult bikes and then we expanded from there and then we started the kids' range. And the, the adult bikes did, did okay, but the, the kids' bikes have been so really well-received and we've, we've gone relatively high-end, high, de- high end, very lightweight components, lightweight frames to make the bikes as easy for the kids to ride as possible. And I guess now becoming a dad as well, you go through this phase of just the wonder of seeing your kids learn to ride their bike and it's so much fun. It reignites your passion for for cycling. So. Yeah, we do. You know, any anyone that's got a high bike out there, if they're posting pictures of their kids out riding, you know, I'll if they send me a message, I'll send them a message back, and it's it's just great to see because you see the smiles on their faces when they're out there that first time when they realise that their mum and dad aren't holding them under the saddle, they're actually pedalling by themselves, and and that 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 moment of freedom and excitement when
0: you're pedalling on your own and, you, and you've and you got your you know with with your children you've got your own um, test riders perfect Ex-
1: well exactly I hope you and pay them very well uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah well they get a free bike out of oh, it right, so, there yeah. go. Yeah, you yeah. can't complain yeah, and a new yeah. bell actually <laughs> but, yeah.
1: but yeah it's like even like Callum um, so Callum was born prematurely he was you know two pounds when he was born he was 11 weeks early really tough start and he's always been you know he's sort of been on the catching up since day one but physically now he's you know as big or bigger than all his mates at the nursery um, developmentally as well he's caught up but he's always been a little bit I guess shy and a bit more um, reserved and he doesn't throw himself into things and certainly new sort of physical activities he's always a bit kind of on the back foot but his bite he just seems to have picked it up he absolutely loves it and we went on holiday to Australia at the start of the year, and we went down to the beach. And there was a bike path that went all the way along the beach, just for miles and miles. And every sort of kilometre, there's a little play park. And we just went out one day. Sarah was walking the pram with Chloe, and me and Callum set off on the bikes. And we would just stop, have a go on the swings. Callum might as well, you know, not just me. <laughs> and then um, we'd go on from place to place. We went on. We did five k up and five k back. We did ten k's, and he's only four. And i'm you, not some sort of mad parent that's kind of <laughs> cracking the whip telling, he just absolutely loved it so it's just yeah it's, it's wonderful to see kids enjoying themselves and you know it's when you've created it when you've designed the bikes and and you know you've had a big part of it and, and you see them having fun of them it's it's a cool thing
0: well what a wonderful note to end on chris thank you so much for all your time you know after hearing just how much racing you're doing it's amazing that you've spared an hour of your time and um, thank you so much it's been truly enlightening. Um it really really has. So thank you. Thank you very it's much. Been great. Cheers. And we'll see you all next month for another Motorsport Magazine podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for watching. Bye bye.